So in a sense, we're doing the experiments of uh, how can we best present the critical mass of neuroscience in a way that architects can factor it into their design experience. Hello and welcome to Arcanex Sessions One-to-One. I'm Amelia, and this week my guest is the multi-talented professor Michael Arbib. For nearly 30 years, Arbib taught computer science, neuroscience, engineering, psychology, and mathematics at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and is known for his prolific work on brains and computers. Essentially, what the mechanisms of one can teach us about how the other works. More recently, he's sharpened his focus on the connection between architecture and neuroscience, and developed the concept of neuromorphic architecture. He is now associated with the New School for Architecture and Design and UC San Diego, and has played a major role in the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, based in La Jolla. We spoke about the Academy's upcoming conference and what architecture practice can realistically take from neuroscientific research. So to frame the reference for our listeners a little bit, I wanted to perhaps ask you about the beginnings of your research and how you first became involved with the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, specifically from your standpoint as in, in mathematics. I think this is a really interesting standpoint that we don't often get someone with a PhD in mathematics devoting a lot of their research to neuroscience and architecture in a specific context. So I'd like you to go back a little bit, if you can, into the your mindset in the early 60s when you were at MAT, getting your PhD in mathematics, and you wrote your first book, Brains, Machines, and Mathematics, about this premise that we can learn about ourselves and how our brain works from looking at machines and vice versa. How did you first become interested in applying your mathematical training in that way? The uh, turning point was reading a book by Norbert Wiener called Cybernetics. Uh, The subtitle was Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. That's really the book that added that prefix cyber to the English language. And in that, he revealed to me for the first time that one could take mathematics and use it to think about the brain. And I got hooked on that so that as an undergraduate in Sydney, I I wrote my first uh, technical paper on that subject and chose MIT, where Norbert Wiener was working, as the place to do my PhD. And uh, so in my career, I've really gone back and forth between uh, thinking about how the brain functions and thinking about how to apply mathematics to information processing in general and computers and robots in particular. So the parallel track is that ever since I was young, I've been interested in architecture, but had never taken it up in a professional sense. However, about, uh, oh, must be about 15 years ago, in the course that I've been giving to computer scientists and engineers and a few neuroscientists at USC on brain theory and artificial intelligence, I decided for a couple of years to have a very different project, which was instead of modeling what's going on in the brain of animals as they scurry around the world, try and think about what it might mean for a room to have a brain. So that instead of it's looking out on the world and figuring out how to interact with the world, it was looking in on the world that it defined, the space within, and thinking about how it could interact with the people within that space. 
So that that came up around 2002, 2003 and lay dormant there after the um, two years I used it in class for about six years. And then, thanks to my wife, I got to a meeting downtown in San Diego of the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. And uh, the theme of that meeting was basically how can we monitor the brains of people as they explore an environment to get information on the brain that might feed back into the design of the built environment. And so in the question period, I, I got up and said, well, I'd like to push a different idea, this idea of neuromorphic architecture I've been pursuing, which is how might we use what we learn about the brain, not so much to study the brain of the people in the building, but to give a brain to the building. And that idea caught on. And as a result, I was invited to the board of the Academy. And in the years since, I've been developing my ideas in a series of talks and papers and interactions with people, getting to know more architects, so that by now, I wouldn't say I'm an architect in any sense, but I at least have a better understanding of what architects do. And just this last quarter, with Tatiana Berger, an architect at the New School for Architecture and Design in San Diego, I um, co-taught a course on neuroscience for architects and began to learn the difference between discussing the brain with computer scientists and neuroscientists and trying to make it relevant to young architects as they try to improve their skills in design. Obviously, so much has changed in the discourse around cybernetics since you were first exposed to it and since you began working with it. I'm wondering at that first moment, how was that kind of research that you were involved in received? Even within a context of MIT, was it was it seen as something like very promising for the future or perhaps a little bit a little bit out there? So the original lectures that the book was based on were given in 1962 in Australia. And then the book came out in 1964. And by a sad piece of good luck, Norbert Wiener had just died when the book came out. And as a result, it got um, written up as the lead book review in the Scientific American. It got mentioned at some length in the New York Review of Books. It got translated into six languages. So it was very well received. It was just at the right time when people wanted to think about brains and computers and needed a little more intellectual depth that the mathematics could provide to think about their relationship. So uh, I sometimes joke that my career has been going downhill since 1964. <laughs> well, obviously, the, the basic public interpretation of how machines work has drastically changed or something like a machine, like a computer, how that operates in the public consciousness is drastically matured since the 1960s. But still, I'm sure, and especially as you refer to when speaking with architects, it takes a different mindset or a, certainly a different approach to teach these subjects. So for this, obviously the students who are coming to a course for of architecture and neuroscience are a little are self-selecting. They're they're interested in that topic and they're more likely to be receptive to it. But what was it like trying to tailor that information for an architectural audience? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Okay. So on the one hand, in neuroscience there are tens of thousands of people doing excellent research, but in very small compartments. So that making the transition from here's a little piece, here's a little piece, here's a little piece, and we're really going in depth, to here is a broader picture to present to the architect, that, that's one challenge in itself. The other challenge is that because neuroscientists are specialized, a lot of them will look at vision, for example, in terms of what's happening in the retina, what's happening in the early stages of the visual pathway, without really stepping back and saying, what is going on in visual experience. Now, turning to the architect, we have the problem that 
a lot of architecture is communicated by rather simple plans or rather glossy photographs, which overly rely on vision. So one of the places I've tried to bridge between the two fields is taking a field called neuroethology. This is the study of what goes on in the brain of different types of animals as they behave and say, okay, don't think about a building in terms of just a, a static beautiful visual structure. Think about it in terms of a place where people move, interact, do things, interact with each other, interact with the building. And let's use as our comparison point the way we begin to understand what goes on in the heads of frogs and rats and monkeys and humans as they interact with their environment. So one of the design charrettes that Tatiana Berger and I designed that seemed to really help the students was to think about designing an apartment for a blind person and trying to really strip away all the support you get from vision. And uh, then we open them up to think about things. Well, if you had bare feet, you could use the texture of the floor as a navigation cue. On the other hand, you don't have visual search. If you drop something in the wrong place, it's very hard to find it without vision. So think about putting in particular features where people can store different things so that there's an external support to their memory. So in this way, we bring in action, we bring in memory, we bring in the multiplicity of the senses, not just the dominant sense of vision. So I think that's not a bad example of how we sort of close the loop back to what we can study in neuroscience. On a previous podcast episode, not for this particular podcast, but for our Archonnect sessions, our general discussion and news series, we recently had a discussion about architecture education incorporating virtual reality systems into their education, specifically to do things like what you're talking about, which is kind of creating a situation where the user of the architecture or the inhabitant is somehow different or has something specific about their sensory capacity that forces the designer to think about things differently and think about perception differently. And that's where we get into these more precise annals of neuroscientific response to a space. But what is specifically for VR, what people are so excited about is this opportunity to create a more theoretically empathetic opportunity for engagement in those different personalities. So for the person who goes into a VR system, they won't necessarily be able to experience that as a blind person because the VR is also visual, but the VR system can put them in a different position than the one that they might inhabit in reality so that there's this new empathetic possibility for designing from that position. And I know ANFA, and particularly at um, the new school in San Diego, has a cave system, which is kind of this early virtual reality space more in the physical realm than something that is an immersive headset, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about how virtual reality first came to kind of bear in the kind of research that you're doing for architecture and neuroscience? <laughs> the short answer would be no, but not letting myself get discouraged that. I became aware of this after some time with ANFA because Eduardo Macano, who was the president of ANFA when I joined it, had been working with Eve Edelstein, who until recently was associated with the new school, on using the cave to basically look at how you could design a room projected on the different walls. I mean, the cave is just basically a, a room, but where you can use computer graphics to, to cover all the different walls with different things to give you the illusion of moving through an actual space. And um, so they were able to look at ways in which by modifying a design, they could change people's reaction to it. Another effort. And the actual cave and this research was at UCSD, although people at the new school were engaged. The other effort was with sound. 
so that to take an environment and change it. So one project was hospital design. How could changing the soundscape do things like, on the one hand, improve the well-being of the patient, but also increase the chance that the doctor's instruction to the nurse were accurately received? So that adds to the, the, the dominant visual mode of virtual reality, the, at least the soundscape, if it doesn't get into to touch and the other features. Do you feel then that the architectural and particular potentials for the neuromorphic architecture that you're speaking about, do you feel that there's a particular potential within VR to help architects reach that ultimate potential? Okay, so so two different answers. One is that in, in terms of the student projects last spring at the new school, we did feel the need to have available to the students better VR production capability. We had we had a couple of students actually did come up with some VR using things like um, Google Glass and so on. But uh, the ability to mock up environments and then test people's reaction to them seemed very important. On the other hand, some students just simply took over a room on the um, new school site and, and set up furniture and partitions and other things to create a, a, a real environment in which they could test these reactions. So I suspect there will be a, a trade-off between things that are easy to do in virtual reality and things where it's better to just simply design the physical space. I said I'd give you two points, but there are three, because the second point is that we haven't yet got very far in finding cheap but effective ways to monitor brain activity as people move around the environment. We can put on helmets and, and measure the electroencephalogram and so on. But I, I think in terms of having that so that it's reliable enough that we can extract good signals to correlate with brain responses to architecture is still an early stage. So if you will, that's an augmentation of the virtual reality environment to not only present better stimuli, but, but find better ways of monitoring and analyzing the responses. Now, the last point I want to make is that a frustration for me, from my particular point of view, is how are we going to get architects to learn enough about the brain to deepen the conversation? It's sort of easy to, to get an informal idea of some aspect of the brain and then jump off and do some design. And I think it's actually a real debate in our community at the moment as to how much about the real workings of the brain do architects need to know. But, but for example, John Zeisel is well known for his work on creating homes for um, people with Alzheimer's, and certainly in his work, wanting to know at least more about the symptomatology of the Alzheimer's is crucial. But whether you need to know about plaques and other things going on in the, the neural networks of the Alzheimer's brain is, is an open question. So specifically with how an architect might incorporate the, this neuroscientific knowledge, because you're speaking about how the core question being exactly how much do they need to know and exactly how much can they actually apply? Insofar as we don't have a VR system headset that is capable of both communicating that in VR environment and also intaking data of the neuroscientific experience of that person in that virtual space, kind of like a give and take environment that will never have this perfectly seamlessly incorporated environment that is just as receptive to the user as it is that the user is getting out information about how the environment is reflecting back on them neuroscientifically. So one thing I'd like to point out specifically, and maybe we could start talking about the upcoming conference of the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, which takes place this September uh, 22nd to 24th at the Salk Institute in La Jolla. There's a slew of papers and research being presented there. And many of the topics that the papers are focused on are ones familiar to architects just from a casual architects in the world 
operating today kind of position, such as the psychological effect of incarceration environments, as well as what it's like to work in an open plan office, what it's like to have your employee, your fellow employees or your fellow um, colleagues looking at you <laughs> at all potential times of the workday. And generally just the aesthetics, the aesthetic abilities of better neuroscientific understanding of architecture. I'm wondering when in the selection of the papers for the conference, are those some of the key topics that you keep seeing people submit? Or what are some of the other topics that are kind of evergreen or ones that people have an active interest in? Well, the the full program, of course, has has many topics besides those you mentioned. I just want to tie this back to your earlier comment by, by saying I think virtual reality is a small part of the issue. In many cases, it's not so much how do you put a person in an environment, vary the environment and say, aha, they seem to smile more in this environment. Let's go with that design. The issue is what are the general lessons we can learn about the brain or about cognitive science more generally that we can plug in. So for example, on the first day, we have a, a keynote talk by Terry Jernigan, who's going to talk about thinking about effects of the environment on the developing mind and brain. And he'll report on a study there where it's not what somebody doing in a particular environment, but how, how can we look at um, young children and somewhat older children and try to get some general lessons about what is it that allows them to maintain their attention, what affects their learning rates. Now, how might that factor into the design of a school? And part of that design design is going to be what does the architecture offer and part of that design is going to be what are the teaching practices that work and then part of that is going to be how might the understanding of better teaching practices factor back into a better environment in which a teacher can can perform in that way. So I, I just want to caution against getting too excited about virtual reality. I, so similarly with the Alzheimer's patients, yes, there, there may well be studies of virtual reality, but also there will be clinical studies of how people lose their memory at different stages, and that will factor into the issue of clinical studies of what can you do to improve memory versus what can you do to replace memory. So a design issue that an architect and a neuroscientist might get together on is to what extent do we want to allow some difficulty in wayfinding in this Alzheimer's home in the hope that this will stimulate residual memory function versus to what extent do we accept that these patients ain't going to benefit and therefore we'd better find lots of clever ways so that they don't get disoriented. So I think that's a different sort of angle and to my mind, a more promising angle for the real contribution of neuroscience to architecture. And on that basis, virtual reality is a separate contribution. And in some cases, the, the neuroscience contribution and the virtual reality contribution intersect. But I, I think it's a, a minor intersection. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Others can disagree. But it's, for me, it's, um, it's not the major point of bringing neuroscience and architecture together. So it seems to me that in a way, the best way to, in terms of professional practice, merge the disciplines and the expertise of the architect and the neuroscientist isn't necessarily to have uh, an architect who's you know very extremely well versed in the world of neuroscience and can design accordingly but instead someone who whether in their firm has a neuroscientist or themselves has the knowledge to be able to focus on the a precise user group rather than 
saying, I have this neuroscientific knowledge that can be a panacea for all design and it will make me into you know, a master designer for whatever the space. But instead to focus it on how they can tailor their design and tailor their practice towards a specific user group, say, for example, um, Alzheimer's patients. Would you say that's kind of a fair way to perhaps float the idea of how architects and neuroscience might better professionally collaborate? I think it's a step in the right direction. I was talking to a couple of very good architects a while ago, Jeannie Gang and her husband in Chicago, and we got into a whole subject of elevatoring. And I hadn't thought about it before, but if you're building a skyscraper, there's a whole speciality of how do you put in the elevators to reduce the space taken up by them, but also reduce the time required to get from one floor to another. And it opened up for me the idea that there's this sub-sub-speciality for architecture that I hadn't even given any attention to. And similarly in neuroscience, some some years ago, I was asked to do a review and I went through the something like 15,000 different contributions to the Society for Neuroscience meeting uh, that year and tried to classify what do people focus on. I found 438 different subspecialities. So at times we talk as if there's one problem in architecture and one expertise in neuroscience and magically we put them together. And I think the real progress is going to be how do you know who to consult? Just like an architect would say, for this building, I need an elevator expert. For that building, I don't. So I think the problem is twofold. On the one hand, how do we identify those specific problems where, let's say, expertise in vision rather than expertise in wayfinding, rather than expertise in learning in children, rather than problems for Alzheimer's patients, where are those appropriate? And then the second thing is, how do we get a profession where not only do the architects know enough to ask the right questions, but the questions are either professionally rewarding or intellectually challenging. At the moment, a lot of the questions architects ask are not that interesting to the neuroscientists. It's going to require more interaction to say, here's a question that you as a neuroscientist can work on that will fascinate you. Now, having said that, I just want to say one more rant on this particular aspect, and that is that we have got a very good example of this sort of interaction, namely structural engineering. And there, the architect has to learn enough to be pretty sure that what he or she comes up with isn't going to fall down. But being pretty sure isn't enough. They then have to work with a structural engineer to articulate the design to the point where the engineer can actually go through the paces and say, yes, this could work. Or, hey, I can save you 30% materials on this and it will still work. And I, I suspect it's that that's not a bad model of the partnership I can see with a range of people. I mean, again, acoustics, the success of um, the Disney Center in Los Angeles, to my mind, rests not on Geary's architecture alone, but on the fact that Geary, in this case, really worked with Toyota, a superb acoustician, to make the concert hall both architecturally and acoustically succeed. Well, that also brings in simply the educational background for so many architects, which in a way is this generalist training that allows them to know enough within the practice of architecture to also know when they need to rely on specialists or when they should rely on specialists, but still having that generalist kind of conductor of the orchestra position to make sure everything does go nonetheless to their plan. And so I'm wondering whether it just then needs to be taught or loaded, at least in architecture education, that neuroscience is a part of that orchestra. 
Well, as you know, the new School of Architecture and Design has the first certificate in neuroscience for architecture. It started with a, a course developed I think by John Eberhard, who was also the founder of ANFA. But in recent years, the center of that has been a course offered by Gil Cook and Eduardo Macaño, both both former presidents of ANFA. And then this past year, for the first time, we added this course by uh, Tatiana Berger and myself. So in a sense, we're doing the experiments of uh, how can we best present the critical mass of neuroscience in a way that architects can factor it into their design experience. And then we might ask, what else do we want them to know just to have a context without expecting them to be able to plug it in? And and what should we, although we love it as if we're a neuroscientist, realize that's not so relevant? The other thing we're adding is next year, next academic year, the one that's just about to start, we're hoping to add a studio, which will allow students who've taken all the courses, the three courses altogether in the certificate, to then go and do a real design, large-scale project in which they must include some of the lessons they've learned. So I think this is very much an early days situation, but I'd say we've turned the corner in terms of the development of the certificate at the new school. And also, uh, I've served three times for the for the three program committees for the ANFA conference, which is held every two years. And I must say, I'm pleased with the progress from the first round, which was more, I'm an architect, gosh, I think the brain is fascinating. To this time, we're in almost case, every case, I'm an architect who's worked perhaps not with a, a neuroscientist, but at least with a psychologist or a cognitive scientist to get new insight into the way I do architecture. And so I, I think the, the big dialogue is going to be where does a more cognitive approach without worrying about brain details do the job? And where do we want to get into more about how the brain actually works? And then how do we develop enough examples, enough case studies of successful partnerships between architects and cognitive or neuroscientists to provide, as it were, a reference manual so that if you are working on a project as a, an architect, you can recognize there are certain ways in which you can improve the design if you take the, the brain or, or, or the psyche into account. So you've also been involved in other organizations and conferences around similar subjects as ANFA. Do you see a growth of interest in this kind of subject or what kind of things would you feel would need to happen in order to get more appeal and more interest in this kind of subject? I, I think we're seeing a growth, as I've already suggested, within ANFA itself. I've seen a maturing over the last three conferences, and that's a good sign. The other thing, though, is there are beginning to, to be more meetings where other groups have brought in the neuroscience component. I just got an add this week for a meeting coming up in March in London at the University of East London with the involvement of Arup and the, the British Architecture Museum, which has um, neuroscience as one of the design components they want people to address. In what is it, a year and a half ago, I helped organize on behalf of ANFA a, a meeting at the Pratt Institute where we, we looked at neuroscience in relation to architectural Education. I must say there, there was a somewhat controversial confrontation between what I would call old school architectural theory, where reading French and German philosophers seems to be more important than really thinking about the experience of architecture. 
but never mind. <laughs> it was a step. I'm sure many more people would like to pick that fight with you, but I think it could be very constructive. Yes. Well, I'm 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 ready to do battle in a friendly and, and constructive fashion with anyone who wishes. But but actually, since we're digressing on that, that in a sense is part of the the ongoing debate. We we agree that some sort of philosophical education is appropriate within the context of an architecture school, but we don't expect the um, average architect to emerge as a competent philosopher. So in a sense, the argument I'm undergoing here is to what extent should some of that philosophy be more linked to an understanding of the brain. When I was much younger, there used to be people who would write on philosophy of mind without knowing anything about the brain. And then there was a turning point probably in the 80s where Dan Dennett, Patricia Churchland were amongst the pioneers there, where it just became the case that if you're going to talk about philosophy of mind, you really had to know something about how the mind related to the actual brain and, and ponder what impact that had. So I, I think that I would like to see, on, on a much more theoretical note, but complementing what we've said before, a much greater incorporation of neuroscience as a an augmentation to a philosophical understanding of the human mind factored into the philosophy component of architecture education. And that's separate from the how do we make architecture design benefit in more ways from, from knowledge about the brain. One of the keynote speakers and a panelist at the Anfa conference this September is Stephen Hole. How do you imagine his role um, as an architect? What attracted him to the conference and what specifically in his work combines architecture and neuroscience? Well, the short answer is that I wasn't engaged in recruiting Hull to come to this meeting. But what I can tell you from what I know about his work is twofold that might be relevant. One is that one of our strong supporters has been Yuhani Palasmar, who's, as it were, the dean of Finnish architecture, but has written some very important books in which he's brought phenomenology to bear on architectural practice. Um, he has one book that particularly interested me called The Thinking Hand, because uh, I've done a lot of work on how the brain controls hand movements and the role of hand movements in action, perception, and language. He also wrote a book called The Eyes of the Skin to make the point that perception is not limited to vision, but involves touch and other senses as well. So I would say one component is perhaps that Hall and Balasmar have had a lot of conversations together. Balasmar was the neuroscience keynote speaker two years ago. So so I think that's one, uh, one round. The other is that Hall does have a book, I think published with Piris Gomez, I forget the third author, it might even be Balasmar himself, on perception and architecture. So I, I would suggest that probably the link is not so much directly to neuroscience, but rather through thinking about how people use and perceive architecture. And that explicit discussion is one in which he has been engaged as he's developed his own well-received designs. He's also, as you know, perhaps done a lot of drawing and uh, once you do drawing, not not drawing, just drawing up a plan for a um, a building, but drawing as an end in itself. And I think that, again, invites a reflection on the nature of representation. So without in any way knowing the answer to your original question, <laughs> I think this provides a context from my general knowledge of, of Hall and his work for why I think he will be highly relevant to the discussion, though I suspect he won't be talking about the brain itself. He'll be talking about ways, aspects of psychology and cognition that bridge between the architect and the neuroscientist. 
I think your response is relevant because exactly because you didn't have the the key role in deciding why to bring him, that instead you have this impression of his work and his practice, and then how you see that coming to bear on the architectural neuroscientific level, I think is very telling and kind of gives a promising aspect for how much architectural imaging through drawing or renderings or filmmaking or however and the many different media and platforms that we do have to disseminate architecture can play such a huge role in people's exploration of the sensory aspects of architecture and, and how they they themselves might experience it, whether as an architect or simply as a user. You brought up a few books, specifically from Yohani Palazma and as well referencing earlier in the interview. I'm wondering if you have any texts to recommend for architects that are interested in getting more deeply into the neuroscientific aspects of this discussion that we've been having, whether or not they've been exposed before or they haven't, but just that they're they're committed to it and they want to know more. Do you have any books to recommend? I think that um, a recent collection of papers that's well worth looking at is uh, co-edited by Sarah Robinson, who has herself a very nice little book called Nesting, thinking about architecture in terms that had links to neuroscience. And Yuhani um, Balasma was the other editor. And this was based in part on a conference that Sarah organized at Taliesin West some years ago on mind and, and brain and design. So that's available from the MIT Press, came out about a year ago. Uh, Harry Mulgrave is perhaps the person who's committed himself most to being an architect, learning a lot about the brain. And um, he has a book called The Architect's Brain, which came out a few years ago, where the first half is chapter by chapter going through, in a way, the history of architecture and saying, given the architects of that time, what can we say about their brains, where uh, the line between brain and mind is, is really not so important. But in the second half, he tries to introduce some of the findings of neuroscience, which might let us understand what is required in the way of action, perception, empathy that is common across those generations of architects, while at the same time trying to look at the plasticity of the brain, which means that in each generation, architects reflect the culture of their time and then learn new things from their own experience, which transforms the brains of others who, who come after them. And Harry has another book that came out later. I'm, I can't tell you the exact title offhand, but I'm happy to announce that he's now in the last few months of a new book, which should come out hopefully next year. So when that arrives, that'll be great. So I would say that the little book of Sarah Robinson, the book edited by uh, Robinson and, and Balasmar, Balasmar's books himself, Harry Malgrave's published and to be published books would be a good core. And, and there are now a few other books as well, but that should be enough to get um, our connect people connected. Excellent. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Is there anything else you'd like us to know about the upcoming ANFA conference before it gets underway? Well, there are many details we could get into, but I, I think we might just want to, to mention the invited panel. About a year ago, we were approached by uh, Susan Magsiman from the Johns Hopkins University, and uh, Susan has already had interactions with John Eberhard, who, as I mentioned before, was the, the founding leader of ANFA. But uh, what she and her colleagues at Johns Hopkins have decided to do is, at the Brain Sciences Institute, develop a new initiative on neuroaesthetics. Now, this is a very young field, but she recognized that the attempt to understand what goes on 
in the brain during the aesthetic response was something that was not only of interest to her group as spanning across music and art and other fields, but also was very important to architecture. And so she approached ANFA and we've created a partnership. We will be hosting a social event at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in San Diego in November explicitly to attract the other side, the neuroscientists, to begin to think more about what are the interesting challenges about brain correlates of this. And at the same time, we will be having a team from Johns Hopkins come to provide a paddle on the Saturday afternoon at the ANFA meeting to try and bring the architects there, because there always tend to be more architects than neuroscientists at the ANFA meetings, to bring the architects up to speed on where we are. And I must say, it's very early days, but enough to be intriguing on linking brain to aesthetics. And I note that amongst the contributed papers that we accepted is one by a young architect, Alessandro Gattara from Italy, who just completed his PhD working with Vittorio Galesi, who is one of the co-discoverers of mirror neurons, um, a feature of the brain I'm very much involved with. But Vittorio uh, has carried that very much into the aesthetics domain. And I would say the work with Alessandro is the first attempt to really get a real architect to, to plunge deeply into thinking about what these discoveries about the brain and empathy and the way we interact with others can mean for architecture. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'm looking forward to attending the conference this September to get a little bit more deeply into the research that's being presented and, and hear everything that has to be said. But Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and giving us some background. Okay. I look forward to uh, hearing what you come up with. Thanks for listening to Arconnect Sessions one-to-one with Michael Arbib. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at Thanks again for listening. <laughs>